Hi, this is Dr. Richard Benton. And this is Father Mark Bulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider a small donation by pledging as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 a month. Your gift will help us improve production quality and will go a long way to contribute to the work of the Ephesus School. Please visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible to offer your support. Thank you. In today's episode, we talk about a dominant pattern of judgment in the Bible, sometimes referred to as the destruction of Jerusalem. This topic was prompted by a conversation we had with a friend from Nigeria who was lamenting the problem of fundamentalism and the Muslim-Christian divide in his country. During the podcast, we discuss how this type of judgment works in the book of Amos, reflecting on God's unique stance against his own people in the Bible and its implications for individuals, groups, and nations. Overall, a topic relevant to the many challenges we face in Nigeria and elsewhere. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Dr. Richard Benton. And this is Father Mark Bulos. It is the ninth episode of the Bible is Literature podcast. It's fortuitous because earlier today, Richard and I had lunch with a friend from Nigeria. And we were talking about some of the difficulties in his home country, but also some of the challenges he faced in becoming a part of American society. Right. You know, it was interesting because one important feature of the conversation was the role of religion in both societies. And as someone who has studied both the Quran and the Bible, he was lamenting how religion perhaps historically was intended to be transformational so that people would go to their church or to the mosque or to the synagogue and hear a word of wisdom and be transformed by this word to improve the way that they live or the way that they treat other people. Right. He spoke in very practical terms. He said, religion is supposed to change the way people live their lives. If you're going into your church or your mosque and you're coming out the same way you went in, what's the point? For both Richard and I, that really strikes a nerve because we are in a school of biblical exegesis that focuses on the practical implication mm-hmm. of wisdom literature, there's a critique always in the biblical teaching, and it is always only applied to the person hearing the biblical teaching, never right. to the person next to you right. when you're hearing the biblical teaching. Right. You are the problem. The book is addressed to you, the source of the problem. Correct. So we wanted to talk about a text today that we think exemplifies this mechanism in Scripture, which we will call, for the purposes of this discussion and future discussions, the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem is a way of expressing a feature that is unique to Scripture and that really ties together the entire canon from Genesis to Revelation, and that is this idea that the God of Scripture, instead of lifting his people up, undermines them. Right. Instead of establishing power, undermines power and works against human power, beginning with his own kings or his own community in Jerusalem or in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And this mechanism, the destruction of Jerusalem has everything to do with the way Scripture undermines power. We often say that Scripture is constitutional. That is, it is given as a rule, as a wisdom tradition, as a text to undermine the authority of human beings, whether that's a king or any individual who's asserting power on earth. The text is given to supplant that power. In its historical context in the ancient Near East, it's very specifically given to supplant political power, the authority wielded by kings and nations and authorities and principalities. Right, and talking about this is somewhat controversial because so many governments use religion as a constitutional element of their government. 
government and the way we read scripture, scripture is undermining government. It is not establishing government. It is undermining power. It is not establishing power. And this is where this understanding that scripture is addressed to undermine the person who is hearing the text comes from. It's born out of this understanding of the canon as being anti-power, anti-institution. So this mechanism has everything to do with why we talk about scripture being a critique for the addressee specifically and not for everyone else. And this is born out of a specific feature of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is implicit in the name, that God not only undermines power, but he undermines the power of his own people, his own city, and the kings and rulers of his own people and his own city. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in the execution of his only son. So if he's willing to undermine power beginning first and foremost with the people who claim to be his people, or whom he names as his own, it's certainly true that when one hears the critique of the text, that we have to apply it first to ourselves. Right. And so Amos 1 and 2 really highlight this because Amos 1 and 2 begin with critique against this nation and critique against the other nation and critique against another nation. And it leads you along the garden path thinking, aha, those are bad nations. Those are bad nations. Those are bad nations. Those are enemies. They're evil, whatever. And then in the end, following the critique against all the nations come critique against Judah, and then the critique against Israel. Well, right. And so just to contextualize it for folks listening, it would be sort of like a sermon where God is preaching, and he's preaching to the Christians. And he begins by talking about the horrible mistakes the people of Islam make, and the horrible things that they've done, and how they'll be held accountable for that. And then maybe he reflects on the many mistakes and abominations committed by the non-believers, I don't know, the atheists, or and then talks about the mistakes or the problems with the Jewish community, and then goes on to elaborate in detail about how different Christian denominations have done these things wrong, but then finishes this sermon by saying, the worst of all these, and the one deserving the most critique are you this specific Christian denomination hearing the sermon right you can see how it's very manipulative because it appeals mm-hmm. to the innate desire to want to point the finger at the other or lift ourselves up and look down our nose at the other as though we're better mm-hmm. or somehow special or you know a kind of a self-righteous right. attitude and in a way the text of Amos indulges that right. innate desire I mean the critiques against the nations are real critiques they're cruel they're violent they've really destroyed and hurt people so they're there is a real critique against these other nations. These aren't straw men. But the worst critique is, is reserved, is reserved for, Israel. for Israel and Judah, right? There's kind of like a warm-up with Judah, because uh, Judah's rejected the Torah. Right. But then we come to Israel, and Israel, as usual, is neglecting the needs of the weaker brother, mm-hmm. abusing the downtrodden, hurting the poor. And worse, they're disobeying the Torah. They say they embrace it. Right. But they're disobeying it. But even worse, they suppress its preaching. Once again, we have another example in scripture where it's not just that you don't want to listen, it's that the teaching is so inconvenient, you don't want it preached. You Mm -hmm. want to say something about God, but you don't want to say what God told you to say. Yeah, and they abuse the poor, they take whatever they can from the poor, and they use this to indulge themselves in the house of their God. They drink the wine of those who have been fined, and they take money from those who have committed crimes or whatever, and they use it to drink wine and be comfortable in the temple, and that's in verse 8. And then what's interesting is God says, I'm the one who destroyed your enemies, the Amorites, but at the same time, I was the one who brought you out of Egypt in the Exodus. It says it explicitly, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 days 
in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So I didn't destroy the Amorites just because I felt bad for you. It was part of my plan. I was planning on doing it. So then why would you, in the following verse, neglect those who are trying to teach my word like the Nazarites and the prophets and say, don't prophesy? And in chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. I'm only punishing you because you're the one that I knew. So the Lord, by choosing this people, singles them out for critique. It's, it's really the opposite understanding of scripture than that which is proposed by those who talk about chosenness. Right. Or being a chosen people. At this concept of chosenness that is so emphasized in theology in various denominations in Judaism and Christianity is a complete fallacy. You right. find it nowhere in scripture. You're called out for judgment. You're not called out for special treatment. Yeah, here's the chosenness. I knew you out of all the families of the earth or all the tribes of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And in this sense, we look at this idea of the destruction of Jerusalem again, this mechanism where God undermines his own first, where he brings the worst punishment and judgment upon his own first, the Mm -hmm. destruction of the city. It applies in scripture at the geopolitical level. People usually talk about it from a very individualistic perspective. It applies at the community level, at the group level, because scripture is very concerned about how groups interact, because that's what leads to such great suffering. Right. But then by extension, it applies to the individual. So to someone who walks into a church, they have to hear all of the worst judgment of Scripture and hear the critique of the worst behaviors and not examine where they see it in the world, but examine where they see it in themselves, in their community, and in their broader social context. An example that's really fresh in my mind is what's happening now in the world today. We are all very aware of Vladimir Putin's shortcomings from the media. We're very aware of Russia's mistakes in the media. And just like Amos, I would be remiss if I were to try to say that what Russia is doing is fine or what Ukraine is doing is fine. But where is the talk of the continued campaign of drone bombings in different parts of the world where we're dropping bombs on countries, you know, and and killing innocent people, killing people, innocent or not, is for the Lord to decide. And this is going unquestioned, unexamined by the same media that's so quick to make others look foolish or bring Uh criticism for others. I mean, this is the opposite of what scripture is calling us to. Right. The transformation when you go in to the church, you go into the mosque, what you are supposed to understand is that you are under judgment, or in the case of Islam, you have chosen to submit, to be one who submits, a Muslim, in order to put yourself under that judgment. This is what it means to be chosen. We find the same in Amos, and we find the same in the Quran. The one who is chosen is the one who chooses to submit. And thereby lives a life examined against the text. I think it's important, too, that we understand that we should never individualize this too much. In other words, when you look at the actual text of the Old Testament, as we said earlier in this discussion, Scripture began as a movement against institutional power. Now, institutional power is abused by individuals. However, it's acted out by groups in the Bible. It's acted out by nations. It's acted out by religious communities. So this self-examination, while it certainly begins with an examination of your own behavior, you also have to look at your community. Those who wield power in your community. Those who wield power in your community, which in an American context isn't just the head of the community. Everyone wields power. 
Right. It's very different from the ancient context. When Americans pride themselves at being anti-kingly, it's not the same as Scripture's anti-kingly teaching because by scriptural standards, Americans are all kings. With the, I mean, there's no middle class. The middle class is a convenient way economically to describe the layer in between the super rich and the super poor. But in Scripture, there's the super poor and everyone else. So the middle class are also rich scripturally. Right, exactly. And so you have to be critical of your community in that sense, yourself and the lifestyle you live in a particular context. And even at the geopolitical level, people always talk about how you shouldn't mix personal spirituality with the big picture of global politics and world politics. Well, you shouldn't be talking politics at all. But you should understand the critique of your own nation under the light of Scripture. Right. Power is functional. Power is functional. It might be power in your home. It might be power over the Pentagon. It's all power. It's just to different degrees. It's the same thing. And so the critique against power is consistent. I mean, it says you sell the poor for a pair of sandals. That's a very individual way of looking at it. But it can also have to do with groups. But it means devaluing the humanity of the poor. It's placing a very low value on poor people. Now, is that poor person the neighbor? Is that the poor person who lives downtown? Or is that the poor person who lives in another country whom your country happens to look down upon? And I think understanding its implications in this broad way serves or facilitates a kind of enlightenment that actually can impact not just the way we live as individuals, but the way our communities and our societies interact with each other. It's extremely important to understand this. And Paul in Galatians is very clear. Towards the end of his letter, he definitely holds church leaders accountable and criticizes them, but he comes right back around and holds the members of the community as accountable. Well, I mean, in Zechariah, this happens too, because the leadership is completely corrupt, but the people are complicit in getting rid of Zechariah, the prophet, as their leader. They're just as willing to sell him off. I mean, that's normal. And all the way to St. John Chrysostom, you know, he'll critique the rich, but then lest the poor become self-righteous, he critiques the poor as well. He's the master at that, which mm-hmm. confuses modern scholars. You can't take him out of context. Exactly. So the kind of transformation that our friend from Nigeria was looking for is possible when we deal with scripture as wisdom literature that has very specific implications for our behavior as individuals and as community and our understanding of our place in the world as subjects of this teaching. All Thanks. right. Thank you. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.